We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning to all in our uh, sickness-stricken congregation. We're glad that you are able to be here today, and I suspect we have, thank you, John, we have a bunch more people online probably than normal. I wonder, John, you have a number there, people waiting to watch the service? 19 families watching that way. Wow, that's great. So we welcome you if you are on the computer at home um, or the television, and uh, we're glad that you're participating with us. All right, let's take our scriptures, please, and turn in them to Luke's Gospel, Luke's Gospel in chapter 1. We visited this before this morning just to look at one verse, but I want to look at a little bit more than that today, just as we read the scriptures together. I trust you are maintaining the discipline of scripture reading in your own life. It's a blessing and it's protective even when you don't feel like You know, today was the greatest, uh, most insightful day I've ever had in the Bible. God's Word is working, slowly perhaps, but surely. God's Word is at work in your life, and the more you apply yourself to it, the more good work it will do. Luke chapter 1, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. This is a very rich prologue to a book in the Bible. And it shows us that this is actually a letter. We call it a gospel, but in fact, it is a letter written to a man named Theophilus by Dr. Luke. And Luke demonstrates himself here to be a historian of the first-rate quality. There is no question that this is history. This is a history book like you would find uh, any other history book in ancient times or In modern, only I think uh, compared to modern books would probably be better. Uh, But in any case, these are trustworthy words. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. 
And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When, when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God." He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Notice he is not Elijah, but he's going in that spirit and that power to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, listen, friends, I know that this text is talking in terms of the spiritual reality and John coming to make straight the way of the Lord, talking about repentance and bringing the people to God, but one of the ways that repentance is demonstrated is the hearts of the fathers are turned to their children. And there are a lot of hearts of fathers today that are not turned to their children. Isn't that, isn't that the case? They make children, but they don't care about children. May God turn the hearts of the fathers to their children as a demonstration of repentance before him. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people, these are the ones outside, waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple where he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I think you understand what that means. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Poor Gabriel. Every time he meets somebody new, they're always afraid of him. Well, there's a good reason for that. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, 
and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to the city of Judah, to a city of Judah, rather, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm looking at uh, Elizabeth here, and I'm saying, man, she is a very godly lady, very godly woman, uh, recognizing uh, the mother of the Lord, uh, talking about how God will fulfill those things that were told to her. Uh, Zacharias was a little doubtful about all this, but uh, he, he came around eventually, we know that. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now just pause for a moment and imagine the work that it took for Luke to gather all of this information. It seems like he did gather. He didn't just, you know, get it from God somehow. I mean, he knew about the, the news spreading across the hill country of Judea. He knew the specific words of Mary, of Elizabeth, now of Zacharias. Now the father, his father Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abram, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Man, that is a powerful message, isn't it? A dad being able to say, my son is going to do that. Amazing. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts, the day of his manifestation to Israel. Well, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Genesis, please. And uh, if you did miss this morning's service, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. We uh, spoke on a couple of questions that were uh, sent my way, and then uh, a question that I had myself uh, regarding the idea of John 15, verse 15, where the Lord says, I'm not calling you any more uh, slaves, but I am calling you friends. And we kind of investigated what that looks like uh, for us in our lives as we think about our relationship with Christ and with God as a friend kind of status rather than merely as a servant or some of the other figures that are used to express our relationship to God. But we turn this morning to Genesis chapter 17 and we see uh, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. At least three biblical covenants have signs associated with them. These signs serve as a reminder of God's faithfulness and of his covenant requirements on his people. The first one is the covenant with Noah. Do you remember what the sign of that covenant is? Yes, you're familiar with that. It's the sign of the rainbow. That rainbow reminds us that God will not flood out the earth again as judgment upon the people that inhabit it. The second sign is the covenant with Abraham, which we will see here in Genesis 17, and that has as its sign male circumcision. In Genesis 17, 11, the Bible says, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And we'll look at that further uh, this morning. But I'll mention at this point Romans chapter 4, verse number 11, which addresses this as well. It says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Uh, So Paul uses the chronology of Genesis to teach us that circumcision is not necessary for salvation, is it? And the Bible's very clear about that, super clear, couldn't be more clear, And uh, but Paul is, is giving us that argumentation to say that he was made righteous before circumcision. This was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which was a separate deal from imputed righteousness. Remember Genesis 15 he, got, he did express belief, that is, Abram expressed belief in God, and God imputed it to him for righteousness. 
But he had believed God long before that, years before uh, that as well. So we have the rainbow sign, we have the circumcision sign, and then the covenant with Moses, that is the Mosaic covenant as we call it, is signified by another sign. Does anybody know what that sign is? That's a little bit more of a puzzler. I think we're not as familiar with that, but I think maybe we ought to be familiar with it. It's in Exodus 31, verse 13. God says, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And then let me also just reiterate that by going to Ezekiel chapter 20. You know, this is probably obscure. You know, you you probably don't think of Ezekiel very much of the time. But uh, Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse number 12 says, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths, to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Verse 20, hallow my Sabbaths and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So maybe you didn't know that, but now you do. You have the rainbow, you have circumcision, and you have the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Of these three signs, the rainbow is obviously still operational. You've seen many a beautiful rainbow, I hope, in your day. It's always uh, nice to go outside in the sprinkling or after the rain and see a rainbow. Uh, The second one, male circumcision, is not required of people generally. And Sabbath observation is not required either. Now, Jewish people are free to observe the latter two signs, circumcision and the Sabbath, if they wish, but neither Jews nor Gentiles are under the law of Moses today because it has been fulfilled in Christ and replaced by the law of Christ. Now, maybe that strikes you as shocking. I'm sorry if I've shocked you, uh, but that's the reality of biblical teaching. In fact, if anyone thinks, if they're a Jewish person, say, we'll, we'll pick on them for a moment, on the Jewish people, if any of, of such person thinks that they are keeping the law of Moses or if a Hebrew roots person thinks they're going back to keep the law of Moses, I have a simple challenge for them. Just what percentage of the law are you keeping? What sacrifices are you making at the central altar in Jerusalem? You know, are you doing all of the actual you know, observation of, truly kosher diet and all of the things that you're supposed to do and all of the tithing and all of that? Obviously not. Obviously not. And God saw to it to destroy the temple in 70 AD to make that crystal clear. The, the, the very centerpiece of worship of, a, of the Jewish person under the law of Moses has been destroyed and it's no longer operational. The Day of Atonement doesn't cut it as far as just saying you're sorry in terms of if we really are under the Mosaic Covenant, you've got to make sacrifice. Well, why isn't it operational? Because God sent one sacrifice for all time, for all people in Jesus Christ and would be offended, frankly, if somebody came along and said, well, we need to add more sacrifices to his 
to uh, make ourselves right with God. Now, there's an issue in Ezekiel. We've dealt with that very much before that we won't get into this morning. But you have these signs, and uh, the two that I mentioned are not operational or required to be observed today. Now, I was just uh, pondering, uh, have been pondering since I wrote this little piece of text uh, some time ago, uh, to ask you to think, stop and think, do we have any signs today, uh, religious signs that we keep? I'll just let you chew on that for a minute. Any signs of this kind of fashion? Go back to Genesis chapter 17, if you were following me there, over to Exodus and Ezekiel. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, we have the reconfirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. In this section, the promise to Abraham or Abram, I'm getting ahead of myself, is confirmed once again. Specifically, Abram is promised many descendants. By the way, look at verse number 3. I'll back up to verse 1. Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face. That's a very good posture for somebody who is face to face with God. Fell on your face. Almost everyone in the Bible who is faced with a, a divine appearance, a theophany or Christophany, an appearance of Christ before he came in flesh, falls down before the God uh, of the Bible and recognizes that he is in some trouble because you don't see God and live. So God is very merciful to some of these ones to whom he appeared or sometimes sent an angel, an intermediary to appear, sometimes the angel of the Lord which we believe is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Now, God goes on in verse number four. He says, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. That would mean something like exalted father. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. That's what Abraham's name means. Father of many nations. Sometimes people say father of a multitude. But as father of many nations is really what God is intending to convey there. He says in verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I will give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, um, God, back in verse 5, changed the name of Abram. He can do that. You know, he could change your name, too. Sometimes, you know, people today, well, I want to go to the judge and I want to legally change my name because I don't like it. That's kind of an offense to the person who gave the name to that person, the parents, ostensibly, named the child. Um, if God can do 
a name change to somebody as powerful as Abram, he can change your name too. And I'm just using this today as a way to remind us, to underscore to us that our very being, our very selves are defined and identified by God. If you want to know who you are, pause. You know how people kind of go on a journey to find themselves? Well, they never were lost. Well, they might be lost spiritually, of course, but uh, if you're looking inside to find your identity, you're going to find a disappointment. You look outside. You look to the Word of God to find out what your identity is. You submit to that, and you will be the happiest person that you can be if you submit to the will of God about what your identity is, who you are. Don't look within. Look to God and look to His Word. The name change here is tied closely to the fulfillment of the covenant promise. Whenever you think of Abram, remember, or Abraham, remember that his name foreshadows the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to a multitude of people. Okay, so Abraham, just link that, associate that in your mind with God's fulfilled promises to a multitude of people. Connect those two together and keep them that way. This lays really foundation for the rest of the Bible. I mean, if you take this out, you know, everything else above it just goes clunk down one level. It just falls to pieces. You have to have the covenant of Abraham. You get rid of Abraham, you get rid of the root, you know, you get rid of the the root and fatness of the olive tree. You cut that out from under Christianity. You cut it out from under Judaism. You just say, well, Israel's gone, Abraham's gone, the promises are gone. You don't have anything left, even for yourself. You know, you might say, well, I've got Christ. Well, where did he come from? He's the seed of Abraham. You can't have Christ without Abraham. So we've got to hang on to the whole thing. One, one thing to keep in mind here, too, is that this is the fourth time that God has mentioned the promise of the covenant in Genesis. Chapter 12, chapter 13. We had chapter 14 was the you know, Melchizedek thing and that whole battle, remember that? So it wasn't there, so 12, 13, 15, that's when the promise was given and we had the, uh, uh, God's covenant there and uh, the promise of what was going to happen to them in the far future and uh, God passing through those pieces and making the covenant ceremony there. And then um, here in chapter 17 again, four times. The first time, Abram was 75 years old. Perhaps the second time he was 80. Then he was about 85. And now he's how old? Tells us 99. Over a period of 25 years, God reiterates this promise. You know, we read it like three chapters and we're like, oh, that's, why does he keep saying it? Well, how long have you walked with God? You know, over a course of 25 years, if you heard from God four times, that'd be, that'd be pretty good, Right? And it's amazing. He's reiterating this promise. This is not a passing fad. This is going to happen. The covenant itself is an everlasting covenant in verse 7, and it promises, uh, promises the land as, as an everlasting possession to the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. We can look at Genesis 26.4, but I see the clock is continuing to move. It will never stop during this part of the service. So I have to keep moving. You can look at 26.4 yourself. Listen to the terms of the covenant, though. I just summarized these in my notes under letter E, the terms of the covenant. 
First of all, in verse 1, it says, Abram must walk before God blamelessly. You know, it's easy to, to object and to say, that's impossible, pastor. How can somebody walk blamelessly? That's impossible, you say. I say that's too facile of an excuse. That is, in other words, a flimsy, cheap excuse. It's not going to hold water before God. I mean, if God says, you walk before me blameless, and you say, but God, I can't do that, are you really going to answer that way to God? God said it, not me. The Bible says it, not just me. Yes, of course, we know everyone's a sinner. But if God commands you to live blamelessly before him, could I take a page out of my predecessor? You better get busy about doing it. Remember him saying that? You better get busy about doing it. Do that very thing, of course, with God's help. By faith, of course. Striving for holiness, absolutely. But get it done. Get it done. God expects us to be good people. Get it done. Do live a holy life. Without holiness, the Bible says, no one will see God. We understand that holiness ultimately comes from God. He helps us to work it in our lives. And he's very patient with us. You know, it takes some time to get mature and to live for him. But you ought to know, you can't just say, well, all my sins are forgiven, now I can just live however. And God will continue to forgive. Well, yeah, but don't presume on that. You can't presume on that forgiveness. You want to live for God. Second term of the covenant, God will multiply Abram exceedingly. Third, nations and kings will come from him. Notice plural, not just the nation of Israel and all the kings of Israel, but the nations of who? Remember? Ishmael and all the kings that that proceed from him. All those nations will arise from Abram. Fourth, God will keep the covenant. He says all these things in here. You can glean them just like I did in my study and, and jot them down. I have them here all for you. Number five, God, he says, will be the God of the Jewish nation. This is where we get the idea, the phrase, I will be their God in the Bible. If you have read the Bible at all, you recognize that phrase as a very precious and repeated phrase. Jeremiah 31 in the New Covenant, which is kind of a packaging up and fulfillment of aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, is a continuation of it. In the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. You see it in Ezekiel 11. You see it in Zechariah 8. You see it in 2 Corinthians 6. You see it in Hebrews 10 and you see it in Revelation 21.3. Unfortunately, we can't visit all of those, but I'll just visit the last one. It says in Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's what it's all about. When we talk about becoming a Christian and we talk about forsaking sin and all of that, we're talking about becoming his people so that he will be our God and we will be his people and we will share that everlasting, precious relationship forever and ever in the future. This is what God's desire is. God desires to have a substantial, 
real, eternal, blessed relationship with you through Christ. You might ask, why does he want to do that? I can't tell you all the answers to that, but I can tell you this. Why, why God loves you, why he wants that? Because he loves you. That's what he said to the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 8, because he loves us. His choice is to set his favor upon you if you believe in him. All who believe in him have that favor. All, of all of them, actually, it can be said, uh, greetings most favored one before God, like when the angel greeted Mary. Ephesians tells us all who are in Christ are favored like that. Now, to make this relationship work between us and God, we have to be purified by faith because God doesn't like to be near moral filth. You with me? He wants us to be pure, and so that's why he offers us forgiveness in Jesus and the cleansing and washing of our sins. So he thus lifts us up. But I would suppose that you might agree with me that in addition to lifting us up, he also has to come down because he is so far up. We're not up that far. He comes down. He condescends to men of low estate. He sent his son to dwell with us, to tabernacle among us, and he condescends. No one could rightly relate to God without him coming down toward us. Number six, term of the covenant. God will give the Jewish nation the land in which Abram was currently dwelling as a sojourner. This is why Christians say and understand that Israel, the nation, has right and title to that little piece of land on the far side of the Mediterranean Sea. They have it. It's theirs. There should be a one-state solution (laughs) And that should be the state of Israel. They can allow other people to live there and be free there and, and, you know, move back and forth and have commerce and all whatever. But they are the rightful owners of that place. Now, why don't they today? Well, because they've departed from God. We'll find out that, well, actually, it's in number seven in my list here. The people of God must keep their side of the covenant That's what God has basically said in the first one. Abram must walk before God blamelessly, and his people must uh, as well. This highlights that the covenant, although it's unilateral in the sense that God guarantees it, it's going to happen. In a sense, it's bilateral because it lays responsibilities on the people. You with me? So I'm going to do it, but guess what? You're going to do your part too. Okay, so the fulfillment of it's not ultimately in question, but enjoyment of the blessings and timing of the blessings is, from our perspective, somewhat dependent upon the people's obedience. Okay, so today, the nation of Israel has been regathered, sort of, in unbelief. They don't call out to Jesus as their Messiah. Someday they will, as a nation, as a whole the end of the tribulation and into the millennial kingdom. But today they don't do that, and so thus they have these these kinds of problems. When they're restored in the last days to a place of repentance, that will be around the time of the Lord's return. And that's a critical element in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which includes in it the mechanism of making forgiveness possible. 
Now we come to the sign of circumcision for this covenant in verses 9 through 14. And the uh, scriptures tell us that God gives the sign of the covenant with Abraham, the removal of the foreskin on the male child at eight days of age. It's a sign of obedience and belief in the covenant that God gave to Abraham. It's a physical rite or ritual which does not transmit any grace or any sacramental value to the recipient of the sign. Let's read verses 9 and following here for a minute. God said to Abram in verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So that language may be a little confusing to you, but the Lord is, he's not saying that circumcision is the covenant. He's just saying it is the sign of the covenant. It's part of this whole deal that he's talking to Abram, Abraham about. And so uh, that's a sign. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male child in your generations. And that you know, applies to a natural born citizen, so to speak, or bought, bought with a, a foreigner bought in, a, who's not your descendant, who's a servant in the household, a bond servant, whatever. Um, and so his covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant, the end of verse 13. If there's an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. And we'll pause there. So God gives this sign of the covenant. I was asked one time to go to speak to a medical school class at the university on the uh, matter of circumcision. And so I really puzzled over what am I going to do here with this. It was a small class. And uh, in fact, it turned out, I don't know how this worked out, this particular class, it was some kind of ethics class or something in medicine. But I was there, I was the only man speaking to this group of the instructor and all these girls in the class about circumcision. It was a little bit awkward, but you know what? If you just speak about the scriptures, you still have something proper to speak about. We are talking about male circumcision, by the way. The, the idea of female circumcision is, exists out there, but in that class we didn't talk about that at all, and the Bible doesn't talk about that at all either. Uh, it won't be a subject for us this morning. Now, researchers over the course of history have indicated some health benefit from male circumcision, but I want you to listen to this carefully. That is not the biblical reason for circumcision. Let's be very clear about that, okay? Whether there's a health benefit or not doesn't matter from the Bible's perspective. Circumcision also was practiced in history at the time of Abram, so it wasn't like this was a new invention, Okay, what was new was the meaning invested in this as a sign. Okay, uh, this may have been the case with the rainbow, actually. The rainbow may not have been a new invention in Genesis 9. It may have existed because the properties, the prismatic properties of light and water, diffraction and all of that may have existed before Genesis 9, but God invested the rainbow with this meaning. Here he invests the meaning in circumcision with the covenant of Abraham as a sign. 
It was a physical reminder to the men and women of the nation about their relationship to God. Why do I say to the women? Well, every woman who had a boy, child, would have to observe him being circumcised and then care for the poor lad after he had the circumcision. Or if she was married to a man, she would obviously know that he was circumcised. And this may also have served as a reminder of how to conduct themselves under the terms of the covenant, walk before me blamelessly, including how you use your body with women, men, okay, with regard to marriage and procreation. Now, circumcision of the flesh is an outward rite. God used the physical as a sign of the spiritual. Let me take you to Deuteronomy 10.16. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse number 16. So we move on quickly from the notion of this, the idea of it in a physical way, to speak about circumcising the heart. Deuteronomy 10.16 says, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. This is an indirect way of saying that they need to repent and be saved. If a person was circumcised in their heart, if, if, that, if you could say that about a person in the Old Testament times, what that basically meant was they were saved. They weren't stiff-necked. Their heart had been regenerated. That's what that means. Very, very important concept. Heart circumcision was necessary for them to love God, to not be stiff-necked. Basically, it indicates repentance and faith in God. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul that you may live. Now, there's another one uh, related to that in Deuteronomy 30. Maybe you want to jot that down in your notes. I don't see it here, but... Saw it in my mind's eye, we'll say, but not in the paper. Um, And then Jeremiah and Romans speak also of heart circumcision. So it's a crucial uh, reality that we have to reckon with. I'll I'll take Romans 2, verse 29. It says, He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So heart circumcision, critical idea. And God used the physical circumcision on every male in Israel to remind them of the need for heart circumcision, both for men and for women. Um, We mentioned already about circumcision and salvation. Romans tells us that Abram was saved before circumcision. And, uh, you know, however loud the... Judaizers want to protest that, doesn't matter, because in Acts 15, it's very clear, circumcision is not required for salvation. The Jerusalem council there is unequivocal, responding to this heresy of circumcision being required for salvation. They say, no, it's not required to be saved. Circumcision does not avail anything in Christ, Galatians 5, 6 tells us. There's another theological issue that arises, and that has to do with the relationship between baptism, we do in our our horse trough over here, and circumcision. 
In some covenant theology churches, baptism is considered as the New Testament counterpart to circumcision practiced upon children, and it's considered effectively to bring the child into the covenant community. It's not exactly salvation, but it's pretty close. Some churches are very close. But the New Testament does not suggest this idea of a connection, really, to me at all. Baptism in the New Testament is for professing believers, not infants, who have not professed faith in Christ. Baptism is for males and females. Circumcision is only for males. And really, I I say it this way just to reduce confusion. There's no covenant community today. You know what it's called? It's called the church. There's a church today. And of course, I understand about the new covenant and all of that, but we don't use that language because that's Old Testament language. We rather use the New Testament language to refer to what is going on with us. And that old covenant is broken uh, as well. Finally, we'll just close for one moment here with the last part of chapter 17 in Genesis, and that is the prophecies of Isaac's conception and birth. Um, God promises a couple with a combined age of 190 years to have a child. Abram is 100, basically, and she, uh, Sarah, is 90. God changes Sarai's name to Sarah at this point, and he will bless her with a child. Now, she's not the only one who laughed. By the way, that's why their son is called Isaac, laughter. Uh, He laughed as well. Abram did. And he said, hey, God, just let the promise go through my son Ishmael. We've already got Ishmael. You know, we've, we've already weaned him. He's 13 years old or whatever he was. Let's see, 86, probably 13, somewhere in there. Uh, you know, he's ready to go. He can be the promised seed. But God says, no, no, no. It's going to be Isaac. It's going to be your natural child through you. And I'm going to give that everlasting covenant to him that was given to you. Now, at least in a, in a moment, Abram was pretty amazed about this, okay? Be honest. If you're 100 and your wife is 90, you're probably thinking, (laughs) the time for that is way past. Uh, So he laughed. But that's not going to do good. No, it does not do for God. He delights in doing the impossible or seeming impossible. And so God had selected Isaac, so named even before conception, to be the fulfillment of those promises. And even though he was... Abram was a little bit unbelieving. He came around so that the Bible later would say that he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. So just know there is hope for you. If God makes a promise or a statement or says something in his word and you initially don't believe it, you can come back around and God will be able to say of your life, look, that person, yeah, they had their times. But their general pattern is one of belief. They believed in the word that I said. But even though, listen now, even though I've said that, and that's a wonderful promise of restoration for people who have, who have kind of stumbled, don't stumble in the first place. That's my best advice for you. If God says something, believe it. Believe it. Don't use Abram's laughter as an excuse so I can laugh God off too and then maybe later I'll come back. No, we have the benefit of far more revelation 
We have record of, God's of, of people's experiences with God, of his faithfulness over centuries. Abram didn't have all that. We've got the whole Bible. Abraham, you know how much Bible Abraham had? The goose egg. We've got a lot, and we're therefore much more responsible uh, for that. Uh, God did bless Ishmael as a side effect of all of this. Abram's plea to God to bless him was heeded, but he wasn't going to be blessed so much that he would be the fulfillment of the promises. And then the rest of the chapter basically tells us he went through and they had their circumcision for everybody in their household. What does all this mean? Well, first of all, we can anticipate that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. He's very emphatic about that. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant also impacts us directly. Remember I said if you take it out, the whole thing just crashes down. Uh, we can't take that out. It's, it's very important, the Abrahamic covenant to us. Also, this passage teaches us that God can do things that seem to be impossible. You know, he's maybe probably not going to give you a child when you're 190. I hope you do live, if you're married, to 190. But because uh, he doesn't have, he hasn't given you a specific promise that you're going to have a son and you're going to have a seed and a nation and all that following and a multitude of descendants. But he's given you other promises, and you might say, well, that seems impossible, but don't think so because God is able. God even blesses those outside of the boundaries of his covenant. You know, he blessed Ishmael. Did he have to do that? Well, in a way, he did because Ishmael was also Abram's offspring, and God promised to bless Abram. And so you too, if you're outside of the bounds of God's program, may be receiving some blessings from God anyway. I mean, when God sends the sunshine on the earth, don't the unbelievers enjoy it too? And the rain, and the fruitful seasons, the beautiful trees, those are just some manifestations of God's goodness. There are probably a million that we don't recognize. How, in fact, even right now, your body is sitting there regenerating itself and, and uh, fixing any you know, cuts and scrapes and, and getting rid of cells that would turn into cancer otherwise and all of that. And all of that's happening and you're not recognizing it and you're not bowing down and thanking God Man, we need to be thankful to God for all of that goodness that he's bestowed on us, even when we don't recognize it. May, he do, may we do that uh, for him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, be together today and to hear from your word. We want to pray for our brothers and sisters in other places in the world, like the Protos and the Gibbons, uh, who have shared with us their Christmas cards and are laboring for you and the different places where they are, and all the other missionaries that we've supported. And may you bless them this Christmas season. Bless them with the knowledge of things like what we've talked about today, too, that you are a promise-keeping God, that you have uh, given us so many blessings, and uh, that you can do the seeming impossible, and that you call us to walk blamelessly before you. Help us to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.